electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Carl Quintanilla. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Thursday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Fort and Deirdre Bosa. Coming up this hour, the growth debate, earnings versus econ. Some bearish commentary, some bullish data. What side of the market should you be on? Then this Tesla turnaround. Shares are surging after record revenue and that beat on results. Stocks up more than 40% in 2023. Later, an exclusive with the CEO of JetBlue as they swing to profit. Air travel demand returns post-pandemic. We'll get his take on the consumer in just a moment, Dee. Well, let's take a look at the market as investors digest a slew of earnings and economic data this morning. Right now, as you can see, uh, the Dow Industrial is about, up about one-third of a percent, but really it's the NASDAQ that is continuing to be the outperformer, though coming off Some of its earlier gains today, of course, Tesla is on a tear here. Energy and consumer discretionary, those are your sector winners today. Energy led by Chevron after announcing a huge share buyback. On the flip side, the so-called safety trade, risk-off trade, moving lower with consumer staples and healthcare lagging. John? All right, let's start with the deluge of data and earnings. The headline economic data, keyword headline here, coming in strong. Durable goods surge, GDP beat estimates, and jobless claims remain low. But on the earnings front, we're halfway through the season, and corporate America isn't painting the soft landing picture that the econ data, well, might be. Dom Chu, can you sort through all this for us? We're going to sort through all of this for you, John. So we're we're getting close to that halfway point in the season right now. So a little bit over a quarter of companies in the S&P have reported their results. And to John's point, it's been a very mixed picture because we do know that analysts tend to take down their expectations for companies ahead of earnings season. So when they do come out, they are perhaps trying to beat a lower bar, if you will. But according to data from Refinitiv, what we have right now is a surprise factor. That is, with the companies that have reported how many have beaten estimates, well, 69% of companies have reported better than expected earnings. And the surprise factor, how much they've beaten by, is roughly 2.5%. So analysts are relatively on target with their revised targets. Revenue is pretty much in line, just about a half a percent better than what analysts were looking for. Now, this is the number I want to key on. This is the blended earnings and revenue growth rate. So if every single company in the S&P reports as expected for the rest of the season, the S&P earnings growth rate will be down 2.7% versus the same time last year and up about 4.2% for the revenue side. Now, the commentary, though, is where things get interesting because everybody is being a little bit more cautious and maybe you can't blame them these days with all the uncertainty in the economy. We've selected a few different quotes to kind of go through to give you an idea of what we're talking about. Sir Sherwin-Williams earlier today basically saying we will not be immune from what we expect to be a very challenging demand environment in 2023. Visibility beyond our first half of the year is limited. That's Sherwin-Williams, paint home improvement. Now let's cycle through to another one on the consumer side of things. Take a look at what Macy's is saying. Based on current macroeconomic indicators and our proprietary credit card data, we believe the consumer will continue to be pressured in 2023, particularly in the first half of the year. And then, of course, this is Tech Check, so let's put a tech name up there. A semiconductor equipment maker like ASML 
basically saying there continues to be a lot of uncertainty in the market due to a number of global macro concerns around inflation, rising rates, recession, and the geopolitical environment. So I guess, John, the point being here, the results are now beating lowered expectations, but they are still beating. That's a good sign. But you do have people trying to set the expectations a little bit lower, especially in that first half of the year. And that's the gray area I want to deal with. There are three months and a quarter, and Macy's talked about a really slow December. Um, you know, after Black Friday, Cyber Monday, all of that really tepid on the buying side. Microsoft actually said something similar. And then the guide, right, is where Microsoft, at least at first, really got hit. When we get these GDP numbers, there's no guide in those. We're backward looking and we can't separate the months the way you can with earnings. So, so the earnings become, I mean, they're not as, they're, they're as high frequency as GDP data is, right? Because it's quarterly. You'll get the quarterly look every single time. But what you do have from commentary is it's the responsibility of a company manager, especially a public one, to whenever things materially change in their business outlook, they have to kind of revise and tell people. That's their responsibility from a fiduciary standpoint. So you'll get a little bit more high frequency data on that point. But what you do have at the same time is a number of companies who are cutting back on the kinds of data they give you. Oftentimes they'll forecast certain things. Netflix, for instance, not giving forward-looking subscriber data as much going forward. So a lot of these companies are trying to cull back a little bit of what they give out, but there's still higher frequency data to be gleaned. And by the way, if you take a look at the revenue growth rates that I talked about, mm-hmm. the tough part here, Deirdre John, is we know how hot inflation has run over yeah. the course of the last year. So how much of that revenue growth really is true organic revenue growth versus how much of that is just the fact that they're charging higher prices because prices are higher in right. general? And that comes down to the fundamentals, which is going to be such an important focus for the months and quarters ahead. Um, Don, when you look at what happened with Microsoft yesterday, there was that disappointing uh, guidance on the Azure front, yet the stock, you know, almost turned it around by the end of the day. You know, what does that say about the big tech earnings coming up and maybe enterprise spend as well? I mean, investors are certainly finding reason where they can to be bullish in this market, even as many expect a recession in the months ahead. You know, what's interesting about that is it's a little bit of a blend of micro and macro, to your point, Deirdre, because we haven't yet hit that massive tech earnings season, right? We got Apple coming up, Alphabet, all these other big ones, Amazon coming up next week. What you have is a jockeying for position right now. You've got some solid data coming out from the likes of Microsoft, but it doesn't paint the full picture. It has been predominantly bearish, there's no doubt about it. So as people start to look at the way things are shaping up, in the NASDAQ 100 at one point yesterday in the afternoon, I think we looked at it, there were nine stocks in the NASDAQ 100 that at but we're roughly 2.30 in the afternoon, had rallied at least 5 to 10% off of their intraday lows. Mm-hmm. And they included the mega cap tech names and some of the big EV makers like Tesla. So it might just show you a little bit of the sentiment right now about how investors are in this kind of weird phase about the fear of missing out thing and also being yeah. a little bit more cautious. So you don't have as much of the career long or short view on tech stocks as you would maybe in other times. Yeah, we're going to keep getting more data. Dom, thank you. You got it. Uh, Sticking with earnings, let's dive deeper into Tesla this morning. Quite a day for the stock. Uh, Take a look. Top gainer on the Nasdaq following that beat on the top and the bottom line. Elon Musk covered a lot of ground on the call last night. Talked about demand. He talked about Twitter. He talked about the potential for a recession. Take a listen. My guess is if if there is a if if the recession is is um, a serious one, and I think it probably will be, but I hope it isn't. 
that then it, it, that that would lead to meaningful decreases in um, almost all of our input costs. Um, so I would expect to see deflation in our input costs most likely, um, which would then lead to yeah um, better margins. How should we be reading those numbers? With us today, Bernstein Managing Director Tony Saganaki joins us with an underperform price target of 150. Tony, good to see you. There's been uh, quite a push-pull debate about these price cuts and the choices between uh, volume and margin. Sounds like you think there is a mix for everybody. Uh, correct. Uh, good morning, Carl, and thanks for having me on. Yeah, I, I do think that the earnings yesterday and the earnings call did offer something for both bulls and bears. On on the bull side, you know, Tesla reaffirmed its belief that it's going to continue to grow really strongly, guiding for almost 40 percent unit growth and um, and seemed very committed towards achieving that and continuing its expansion in terms of production capacity for both cars and cells. On the flip side, you know, the margins were much worse than investors had forecasted. Automotive gross margins adjusting for one-time events, which the street typically does, were about 23%. Um, consensus estimates were 26, so they were well below. And this is before the big price cuts occurred in January globally. And so, you know, certainly there's some possibility that gross margins could be a lot lower, less than 20% at some point in this year, and they were 30% a year ago. So we've really seen a fundamental change in, in profitability, and that, and that plays to the, bears, uh, to the bear side. Right. What do you think happens? How do you, how do you judge the stock? And I know this is a, a very difficult, but how does it trade before we get this analyst day in March? Um, look, I, I think the data point that, that people will be tracking is – um, how weekly shipments are uh, doing and whether Tesla's backlog continues to grow. Um, when we really saw pressure on the stock was when Tesla's backlog uh, started to go down because that was signaling that orders weren't strong. And conversely, if Tesla's backlog is growing, that means that orders are at least as good as production. And so I, I think that's the key metric. Now, if, if backlog grows and continues to grow, Tesla may raise prices, and that would be very bullish. And the converse is true. If orders seem to be slowing and, and backlog is not growing, Tesla may be forced to cut price, you know, particularly in China, uh, going forward. And, and I think that's really going to shape investor sentiment over the next couple of months. How many data points on that, Tony, do we need before you think you feel pretty certain of how uh, demand for Tesla's from the consumer side is trending? Um, it's a good question, John. I, I, I think this is dynamic, right? There's there's obviously a surge in demand because the price cuts were just announced. And, um, you know, there is a chance that the IRA credit will actually get less after March 1st. And so there was pent up demand and, and people are want to be sure they get, uh, get this price and, and are able to qualify for the IRA tax credit. So demand is very strong now, um, and we're gonna we're gonna have to track it. And part of it is is the trajectory. I think ultimately, any kind of price change globally, one way or another, will really be reflective of that. And and that's going to be very key, I think, to investor sentiment um, over the next three and six months. 
Tony, it's Deirdre. Good morning. How do we put these discounts in a broader perspective? Are these discounts, do you think they could lead to the first EV price war? Does Tesla win it? You said that you could envision a scenario where Tesla raises prices again. It's doubtful that the other EV makers could move that quickly or be that agile. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's, a, it's another really good question. I do think that uh, Tesla has fired a shot across the bow in terms of its prices uh, for the EV industry and the car industry uh, more broadly. And we are going to see intensifying competition. And generally, that's not great for all industry participants. Um, I, I think one of the fundamental debates around Tesla is, is this a car company or is this a technology company? And, you know, I've always believed that principally at its core, it's a car company. And the automotive industry is a brutally competitive business. Mm -hmm. There are 10 large competitors. There are five new, well-capitalized EV players that have entered the market. So we're going to have 15 players. It's a global market. Um, historically, car makers have not been able to take price. And so this is, this is an instantiation of that, where we're actually seeing you know, arguably the market leader in electric vehicles taking big price. That's going to that's going to create reactions. And, you know, that's going to make the industry even more competitive going forward. And, and ultimately, that's why I believe Tesla is more a car company. And with gross margins, you know, approaching 20 percent now, that is what a traditional car company gets is somewhere in the 15 <laughs> to 20 percent gross margin. So um, so that, you know, I, I think this is a this is a shot across the bow to the industry. But but generally, um, it's not a good shot because it's going to engender uh, others to be more competitive. And, and that's ultimately uh, the tough part about the automotive industry. Yeah, uh, you point to the historic, I mean, the, the lifelong thought that all OEMs eventually uh, come to the same margin and multiple. And that's what makes Tesla so interesting right now. Tony, mm -hmm. thanks so much. Good to see you. Thanks for having me. Still to come this hour, we will get earnings from our parent company, Comcast, as well as MasterCard Plus. JetBlue shares moving lower after results, but that stock is up 27% this year. We will speak with the CEO exclusively ahead. Tech Check is just getting started. Don't go away. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.
Welcome back. Our parent company, Comcast, with results today. Cord cutting and cable subs definitely in focus. Julia Borston has more on the numbers, Julia, on a day where stock almost got back to 41. That's the highest in the summer of last year. Yeah, that's right. Comcast shares moving about 1% higher after the company reported better than expected revenue and adjusted earnings per share. Growing losses around Peacock and the World Cup were balanced out by lower capital expenditures than analysts had anticipated. The company did lose fewer broadband subscribers than expected, excluding the impact of the hurricane. It would have added about 4,000. But CEO Brian Roberts addressed concerns about slowing broadcast growth, saying that he is optimistic about an increasing market opportunity. If you just look at even Thursday night, and the NFL being on Amazon, that creates a lot of broadband usage. We want to be a company that is uniquely positioned to capitalize on these macro-changing trends. The company reiterated its commitment to ad-supported streaming service Peacock, which added 5 million subscribers to top 20 million in the quarter, saying that they expect a peak of $3 billion in losses this year for the service. NBC Universal's chief Jeff Shell weighed in on the ad market, saying it seems to have bottomed at the end of last year and that they do expect an ad market recovery in the second half of this year. Carl? Uh, pretty interesting. Uh, theme parks, uh, we've talked a bit about how they're expanding their presence around the country, really. But uh, in terms of revenue at theme parks, it's hard to find a year that was better. Yeah, I mean, it's just amazing. There was so many questions about inflationary pressures, the health of the consumer. Theme park revenue grew 12 percent, and they are continuing to invest in this space, really seeing it as a long-term growth opportunity. Obviously, it takes a long time to build these parks, but this is an area where they see increased spending and attendance, so certainly one they're betting on going forward. Yeah, uh, a, lot to, a lot to slice up regarding our parent. Uh, Julia, thanks. We'll talk to you in a little while. Our Julia Borston. John? Yeah, well, coming up, airlines have been some of the highest flyers in 2023. A slew of names reporting this morning. Southwest, American, Alaska, and JetBlue, which is up about 26% this year. The CEO is going to be with us in an exclusive interview from the company's New York headquarters. Don't go away. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back. A number of airlines out with results this morning. The sector has been an outperformer to start the year. Many names, 20 to 30 percent higher. JetBlue, one of the companies that reported today. Let's get over to Phil LeBeau, who joins us with the CEO in an exclusive interview. Phil, over to you. Thank you, Deirdre. Robin Hayes, CEO of JetBlue, joining us on a day when you beat on the top and the bottom line. Robin, we knew that the fourth quarter was going to be strong, but your stock came under a little bit of pressure this morning on your Q1 guidance, which you guys are expecting a wider than expected loss relative to the street estimates that are out there. What, what's the difference there? Why, why? I know it's a weak quarter historically for you guys, but why are you expecting wider than what the uh, analysts are expecting? Hey, good morning, Phil. Uh, just a, a couple of things. I, I mean, I really think it was a, a timing issue because if you look at the uh, four-year guidance we gave, it was uh, 
pretty much in line, if not slightly, slightly better than uh, what people were expecting. And now traditionally Q1 is our weakest revenue quarter. You know, we are a Northeast-based, uh, predominantly leisure uh, airline. So, but if you, so you know, some of the revenue estimates were higher than um, uh, what we uh, have guided to. Um, but our guide uh, of 30% year-on-year revenue increase for the quarter is very consistent with uh, what we were seeing, the revenue strength we were seeing last year. And is actually completely normal to what we normally see, the difference between a Q4, our Q4 and Q1 revenue if you look back to 2018-2019. So we continue to see great revenue strength. And on costs, uh, it was really a question of uh, just timing. Uh, our annu- uh, what we guided costs for the year uh, was very much in line with what we had said previously. Hey, Robin, the, the pent-up demand that was so much a part of what fueled the, the success you had in the last year, how much of that has played out in your opinion? Or do you expect that to extend into the summer? And by extension, are you reassessing your capacity and your schedules because that demand remains as robust as it is? Yeah, demand is, uh, demand is really uh, robust uh, across the board, and we've seen that. You know, we have seen uh, some plateauing of business travel demand since the end of last year, but uh, uh, you know, most of what we carry uh, is leisure traffic or people uh, visiting friends and family. That remains very, very strong, Phil. Uh, we expect it to, uh, to continue. You know, I think it's two things. I think it's a combination of, yes, there's still people who haven't taken trips that they wanted to take. But you know, if you look at the biggest proxy for revenue in the airline industry over time is GDP. And if you go back to 2019 and you look at how much uh, GDP has grown between 2019 and, and 23, we're still at a point where uh, the capacity industry is significantly la- lacking that. So I, I think that is also part of the explanation. In terms of our capacity guide, you know, we don't expect it to change very much. You know, we are still suffering from aircraft delivery delays, and so we've had to um, reflect that in our capacity guide. And also, we continue to plan and operate very uh, conservatively. I couldn't be more pleased with how well the team has done in the second half of the year. Our completion factor in December, uh, which is the percentage of flights that we schedule that we actually complete, was the best in the industry. And so we're going to continue to plan uh, more prudently, uh, bring our aircraft utilization down from 2019 uh, levels. And and that's also going to act as a moderating impact on capacity. Robin, a big growth driver in the future for you guys is the proposed merger with Spirit. Uh, We haven't heard yet how the federal government is going to weigh in on this in terms of if they ultimately decide to fight it. Uh, What's your sense in terms of a roadmap? when you will get a better sense of, yeah, we think we can get this completed and we can incorporate spirit into JetBlue. What, what's your time frame at this point? No, thanks, Phil. So we, we've said that we're still assuming that we can uh, financially close on the transaction in the first half of uh, uh, next year. We're working through the regulatory pro- process now. Obviously, uh, that's something um, that the Department of Justice is uh, rightfully in control of. Um, but assuming that we can complete uh, in the first half of next year, it's going to probably take us another year to get the single operating certificate. And what that means is that we can bring the two airlines together and, and operate it as one. And there's going to be another few years after that before all the Spirit airplanes are reconfigured into a JetBlue uh, specification. So as you know from other airline mergers, it is definitely a multi-year uh, process. Absolutely is. 
Robin, thank you very much for joining us on a day where you beat on the top and the bottom line. Uh, guys, you heard it there from Robin himself, and we've heard this from almost every airline CEO. The demand remains very strong. And, and I know a lot of people are saying, what happens if there's a recession? They're just not seeing that yeah. in terms of their forward bookings at this point. Yep, certainly an interesting uh, point to take into effect, especially if we are heading into a recession. Phil, great stuff all morning on the airlines. Thank you for that. Coming up on the show, after Microsoft invested billions in ChatGPT's parent company, the AI arms race is heating up. We will look at some potential M&A targets in the space. Tech Check remains in just a moment. Welcome back to Tech Check. Couple hours into the trading day, get a check on the markets here. Definitely circulating just north of 4K on the S&P here. The Dow waving in and out of uh, red territory. Strong uh, GDP number this morning. Nasdaq up 3% for the week on pace for the best month since last July. Top of the S&P today is going to be Tesla. Record results in that beat on revenue did send the stock higher this morning, up more than 40% just this year alone. We are watching Chevron as well. Uh, obviously that buyback last night, $75 billion got some uh, pushback from the White House, something we will get to in just a moment. Meantime, you just heard from the CEO of JetBlue, Southwest continues to fall in today's session after posting that $220 million loss in Q4. A lot of news on the airline front today. Let's get a news update with Contessa Brewer. Hey, Contessa. Hey there, Carl. Here's what's happening right now. Russia has launched another wave of missile and drone attacks across the Ukraine. Just yesterday, Western nations announced they're ramping up support for Ukraine and promising to send dozens of battle tanks. Ukrainian officials say 11 people have been killed, another 11 wounded in the current attack. On the West Bank, one of the deadliest days of fighting in years. Palestinian officials say Israeli forces killed seven gunmen and two civilians. A battle broke out after a rare daytime raid by Israel's military, which reportedly targeted a militant group accused of carrying out attacks on Israel. UN and Arab mediators have opened talks with Israel and Palestinian factions. They're hoping they can prevent an escalation of this violence. And an asteroid as big as a delivery truck will just barely miss hitting Earth this evening. NASA says there's no chance of impact, but the asteroid will pass just 2,200 miles above the southern tip of South America. This marks now one of the closest approaches by a near-Earth object ever recorded. It's somehow very disconcerting to talk about a close call when it comes to asteroids, John. Uh, metaphor for the economic numbers you've been getting lately. Contessa, okay. thank you. Uh, ServiceNow out with results last night. Free cash flow up 37% to a billion dollars. The stock flat this morning. I spoke with ServiceNow CEO Bill McDermott after the earnings call about what it takes to grow in this environment. Take a listen. So only the strong will survive. And I believe we're in a platform market now where point solutions can do well if they're the best one. But if they're an also ran, they're going to do bad. And I think in the platform game, you know, we're one of maybe five platforms that really matter in the enterprise. And because of our size and speed, I think it does give us a great advantage to expand swiftly. McDermott told me he's not going to do big M&A. It's about organic growth. But ServiceNow might be an outlier as companies continue to invest in next generation technology, especially AI. Who are some potential takeout targets? Our Frank Holland has that for us. Frank? Hey there, John. Well, IBM and ServiceNow both did say the demand for cloud and software remains strong into year end. Cloud optimization and Microsoft's open AI investment 
A big question for IBM. CEO Arvind Krishna is saying he's leaning into AI and to expect M&A. Leveraging AI deep inside our products is another example of where we have a unique capability. Consequently, we're going to remain pretty focused on these areas. You should expect both organic and inorganic investment. All right, one possible target would be C3 AI, according to Wedbush. The AI enterprise software maker that works with Microsoft has far outperformed, rising 32% year to date, but still remains more than 40% off of its high. AI player Sumo Logic has risen more than 40% year to date. Big spike following reports, Toma Bravo and Vista are eyeing Sumo for a take private deal. Wide range of customers for them, from Fidelity to Clorox. Splunk is a data analytics player that's long been rumored an M&A target, high valuation name that Cisco reportedly tried to acquire last year. John, back over to you. Lots of rumors about Cisco. There's that HashiCorp rumor out there, too. We'll see if they actually do any of that. Frank, thank you. Now, despite last year's M&A drawdown, our next guest sees potential growth on the horizon. Let's take a look at last year's U.S. venture capital deal value. That number still surpassed 2020, previously the biggest year on record before the 2021 spike, according to PitchBook. Joining us now live on set at CNBC headquarters, Madrona Managing Director Matt McElwain. Uh, Madrona has been an early investor in companies like Amazon, Snowflake, and Smartsheet. Um, guest on set. It's been it's a while. It's good great to have to be you here, here, John. It's great to be with you. Let's talk about M&A and how this plays out. Yeah. It gets talked about a lot. People are excited about ChatGPT, but ChatGPT isn't making any money. Well, ChatGPT isn't making any money, but companies like Jasper.ai that are built on top of ChatGPT3, which is also from OpenAI, are making a good bit of money. It is super early days. But I think the analogy here is like the Mo what Mosaic browser, which became Netscape, is to the internet, ChatGPT is to AI. It is unlocking a connection in a way that's never happened for, to, to the end user. Even though we've all experienced AI in our lives, we use it with recommendations from Spotify, Netflix, even a result from Google search is an AI result. But now with generative applications, we're actually making things. We're creating content, we're creating writing, we're creating code. And that I think is gonna unlock not only a whole run of innovation here that'll be the most transformative since the cloud, but it's also gonna make big companies hungry to buy smaller companies. But that's what I'm, what I'm trying to figure out from the investor perspective mm -hmm. is, when are we going to get that super app, that sort of use case mm -hmm. that shows the direct value of AI? Up to this point, we've had, okay, features in iOS. We've had Alexa that shows, mm -hmm. you know, Google Assistant that shows, okay, AI is being used there, but I, I'm kind of getting a benefit for it without having to directly pay for it. When are we going to see companies directly paying for it and getting a revenue boost because of that? Well, I think that you, you've got both the AI native companies, right? Um, and then you've got AI embedded into workflows. And so there's all kinds of these intelligent apps or AI native companies. You know, companies like Gong or companies like Highspot, and these are all late stage private companies that are leveraging AI today and actually making a solution better. Um, but then you're starting to see these standalone applications. Companies like Stable, Diffus or Stable Diffusion, which is unlocking a whole bunch of areas, and companies like Runway ML, which could completely compete and take on Adobe over the next 10 years. You know, we're investors in Runway ML, mm. absolutely amazing company that's going to reimagine through the power of AI, AI native um, 
ways that you do content creation, content editing. One of the highest potential areas, at least th that I see, mm -hmm. you mentioned Gong, is uh, kind of adjacent to CRM. Like if, yes. if you can speed up the sales process by helping to write that pitch or helping to analyze uh, which customers yeah. are, are warmer leads, uh, especially in this environment, boy, that's bad. If I don't have to hire more salespeople in order to generate more sales, that'd be great. Can AI do that? Absolutely. So you're thinking about what's the thing that can do the first creation. Think about like an intern or an agent that's gonna help you along your way. This, in this case, it's automated. Maybe the best example actually is Copilot. So Copilot is a service that OpenAI and Microsoft built together on top of GitHub, which Microsoft owns. And it helps you generate the first draft of your software code. You know, write me a Python script, for example. And I've talked to not only very established software developers, but students in college that say it's helping them be 30 to 40% more productive. Mm. That's real productivity. And with the millions of software developers out there, I think things like Copilot, which is made by, you know, Open, or by Microsoft leveraging OpenAI, or Code Whisperer, which is AWS's version of this, those are really gonna be an early example of both monetization for those providers and productivity for those users. Well, across things like CRM and DevOps tools, Microsoft has a bit of all of it, as well as OpenAI in that That's stake. Right. So That's right. they'll get a chance to at least prove that out. Matt, thank you. Thank you very much. Now, as we head to break, check out shares of Intel spinoff Mobileye. Higher after top and bottom line beats. The company's swimming to a swinging to a profit. I guess they could be swimming to after reporting a loss in the same period last year. And speaking of Intel, do not miss an interview with CEO Pat Gelsinger tomorrow, right here on Pet Check. Intel reporting today after market close. Stay with us. Welcome back. This morning, Chevron announcing a $75 billion in stock buybacks and a dividend hike, much to the dismay of politicians in Washington. But big oil companies are not the only ones buying back stock in massive chunks. Our Bob Pisani is back looking at what other programs stand out, at least to you, Bob. Techs and banks are really doing a lot of buybacks as well, but is it making a difference? You know, buybacks have become an important part of returning shareholder profits. Last year, about $980 billion was spent on buybacks for companies in the S&P 500. About $560 billion was spent on dividends. Big difference there. Wall Street loves buybacks for two reasons. It provides immediate gratification because the company is buying back shares right on the open market. Everyone can see it. And the buyback can be adjusted down if the cash flow declines. On the other hand, dividends, by contrast, are a lot stickier. But there's a big problem with buybacks. They are supposed to reduce share count to improve earnings per share. That's the purpose. But in many instances, there is no share count reduction because the companies issue new shares as options to executives and to pay for M&A activity. However, some companies really do reduce their share count. I call them buyback monsters. Some oil companies have been very active in the last year buying back stock. Marathon Petroleum and Marathon Oil. Look at the share count reduction. And some of the big financial companies last year were very active. AIG, Wells Fargo, Morgan Stanley all had significant reduction in their share count. And by the way, some big tech companies, they've been very aggressively buying back shares for many, many years. I call them the kings of the buyback monster squads. Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, Meta, and Seagate, and Carl. Just to give you an idea how big Apple is, Apple is probably 10% of all the buybacks last year. $100 billion. We don't have a final number. We're waiting for that because they'll announce it. But 
I think it's going to be $100 billion. That's about 10% of all of the buybacks. And they really are reducing share count. And Chevron's about 20 of the flow, right? Yeah, Chuck. it's yeah, it's 20%. $75 billion would be you know $350 billion flow. Chevron, they have bought back $16 billion in stock in the last five years. Their share count has not gone down. Right. So the, this, this idea that we're witnessing the creeping LBO of the stock market, we talked about that for years. Yeah. You think that's a misnomer given the, the way it's used for comp? No, it's not. It, it, it's, Wall Street is a master at this. Wall Street is a master at we're doing Amendment A activity and we're offering compensation to our executives. That's what we have to do to attract talent. And so it's the giant hamster wheel. And that's the problem that I have with it. Traditional old school investors like dividends because it's cash in hand. You're getting real money back, not some promise. So we're reducing the share count and then it doesn't get a share count reduction. Remember, earnings per share are supposed to improve when you buy back stock. That's the purpose of it. And if you just go on the other end, as you used to say, draining the pool yes. and then and filling the pool at the same time, yeah. it doesn't really work. That's why you want to look at those companies that really are the big buyback right. monsters, the, the tech names that are out and there. And hopefully we'll get more color from Chevron tomorrow. Yes, I think they have a little... Uh, it sounds like a good thing. They're returning money to shareholders, but they have a little explaining to do about how they're doing it. And obviously, Washington's not happy about it. Exactly. Thanks, Bob. Okay, pleasure. D. Good conversation there. Up next, remarkably resilient. That's how the CEO of MasterCard is describing the consumer. We'll have how to pay, play the payment space when Tech Check returns in two minutes. We have some news on payment company Stripe. Kate Verney was able to confirm that the company is, in fact, looking towards an IPO. And this is a big deal. It's one of yeah. the oldest unicorns around. It's got to return some money to its yeah. employees. And it could be a big deal for the IPO market, right? It's Absolutely. one of those names floated that if it goes, could really open up that way. Yeah, this is seen as a bellwether. And so the information Wall Street Journal first reported this, hearing from a source familiar with the matter that the company Stripe, last valued at about $95 billion, number one on the Disruptor 50 list, by the way, I should say, um, is also looking to go public. So this is going to be within a year or so. So the, a source familiar telling me essentially that the company's co-founders, so John and Patrick Collison, told employees this morning they're setting a goal of either taking the company public or they're going to let employees sell shares in a secondary offering within the next year. Um, so information, as I mentioned, first reporting this news this morning, I'm also told Stripe has hired J.P. Morgan and Goldman for this deal would be seen, as we mentioned, as a, a way to really reignite what's been a pretty dormant IPO market. Also told a direct listing might be on the table here. The last valuation, technically $95 billion. There have been reports that it lowered its internal valuation to about $63 billion, which is often a sign of actually moving towards an IPO to get more in line with the public markets and where they might value a company like Stripe. Interesting uh, for the, the context in fintech and sort of the competitive landscape, yeah. seen as a competitor, probably more of the PayPal's and squares of the world right. than Visa and MasterCard. Right. But. And we're going to get into all that with our next guest. Kate Verney, thank you very much. So what could it all mean for the broader payment space? We heard from MasterCard this morning with Visa and American Express on deck tonight. Joining me now, SVB Moffitt Nathanson analyst Lisa Ellis. Uh, Lisa, what do you think the public payment space looks like if if Stripe does go public, do you think that investors would sell a Visa or MasterCard to make room or do they broaden out that sort of investment thesis? 
I think they broaden it out. I mean, this has been a very, very long anticipated IPO in the space. You've seen how well Audion has done. That's probably the most recent comp, and they've been out now public for over, over four years. That stock's been a monster. And Visa and MasterCard and Amex have done very well along the way. Um, the sector is somewhat complex, difficult to wrap your arms around. So it actually typically benefits from more high-profile names uh, publicly listed because then right. investors allocate you know, the time and energy to really uh, understand it. And it's a company that has typically served um, tech companies and startups, right? Uh, Stripe, that is, going public, as you say, will raise the profile. Who, do you, who does that create competition for? Yeah, so Stripe, um, yeah, as Kate highlighted, most directly competes uh, with PayPal, um, Block, and Audion would be the three that I would highlight. They also more indirectly compete with some of the players like Chase, Fiserv, FIS, the old school payments companies. Um, and look, everyone is eagerly anticipating this listing. Uh, also, just to see underneath the covers of Stripe, right, where it's been a little bit of a, a mystery for a number of mm -hmm. years and really understand the uh, the unit economics of the business. Yeah. I mean, other startups that have been private this long gives you little breadcrumbs um, along the way. But there's a lot we don't know about Stripe's finances. Lisa, let's talk about the big payment processors, Visa and MasterCard. We have MasterCard this morning talking about a very strong, resilient consumer. Um, they are certainly benefiting, right, in this shift from goods to services. They benefit when economies further reopen, like China's, like others. A while ago, during the crypto heydays, we talked about how the rails could potentially be uh, disrupted one day. We don't talk about that anymore. But do you see anything, sort of in the medium to longer term, that could disrupt this very lucrative place they have? It feels like they're part of every transaction. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So... Look, the area that um, investors focus on a lot right now in terms of potential disruption are these pay by bank models, um, you know, direct transfers from your mm -hmm. bank accounts. Uh, yeah. And interestingly, though, uh, MasterCard uh, highlighted on their call this morning that, you know, in sort of a defensive flanking move, they've actually got or are developing a product along those lines in conjunction with JP Morgan. And you could, as an investor, view that, you know, a little bit uh, skeptically that that's a bit of a defensive move to make sure that they have an alternative, you know, to debit and credit the, the card products uh, for some of these other payment flows that lend them, like bill payment, for example, that lends itself well to mm -hmm. more of a by bank model. Right. We're also talking recently about the retail debit card, like the Target Red card presents an interesting uh, affront, or I don't know what you call it, to some of the payment companies, the Rails. Lisa, always great to get your opinion. Thank you, Lisa Alice. Thanks a lot. Up next, Meta announcing former President Trump will be allowed back on Facebook and Instagram, but with what it calls guardrails to prevent repeat offenses. Tech Check is back in two. One more thing before we go, Meta Platforms saying it will reinstate former President Donald Trump's Facebook and Instagram accounts 
in the coming weeks. It comes after his two-year suspension from the platform that followed the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol in 2021. Company says new guardrails will be in place to deter the former president's previous offenses. Trump's meta-related accounts once back online will see a combined total of nearly 60 million followers from both Facebook and Instagram. Julia joins us now with her take on that and what he what happens, Julia, if in fact he breaks their rules again. Well, look, uh, it's a it's a much lower bar for him to break their rules. And I think that's what they're hoping will deter him from um, doing anything inappropriate on the platform. I do think in a lot of ways this move is more important for Trump than it is for Meta. Um, the company was very concerned about seeming like it wasn't fair in its decision making um, and also like it wasn't um, a partisan in its decision making. So there are two key things is that they believe that Americans should be able to hear from aspiring leaders and also that they have the guardrails in place to prevent um, further bad action on the platform. Um, I do just want to read a little bit um, from this statement about the guardrails. They say these penalties will apply to other public figures as well whose accounts are reinstated from suspensions and that if he posts further violating content, the content will be removed and he'll be suspended for between one month and two years, just depending on the severity. So, guys, I think this is interesting to see that you can go on and off these platforms. These bans aren't permanent. But the real question is, what does Trump do now with that platform? How much is he advertising on Instagram and Facebook to his followers. Julia, does this mean the oversight board is working? Because this is kind of what the board forced Meta, Facebook to do. They say you can't just suspend people with no uh, time limit and with no specifics on what the rules and violations are. I mean, I would say this is a pretty good example of progress. They have very specific things, very specific repercussions. They're laying out a path for what's going to happen not only to Trump, but to other people if they have repeated violations. So I know you've been skeptical of the oversight board in the past, John, but I think in this situation, it seems like it's playing out as Facebook meta uh, would want. Yeah, we could see some more action. I mean, I feel like it's been a relatively calm few months, drama, few, drama less months at Meta, maybe thanks to Elon Musk and Twitter, but maybe that could change it. Julia, thank you. Let's get one more check on Tesla before we close out the hour. It is still leading the Nasdaq, which is up better than half a percent. The Dow, however, is hovering near the flat line. The S&P 500 up about a third of a percent, hasn't moved much over the hour. Uh, Carl, still a big week of earnings, weeks, I should say, of earnings, and we're going to get big tech in full force next week. Yeah, as John said, uh, Intel going to be so important tonight. Uh, talk about the, the CapEx. And as Gelsinger said in one interview recently, John, uh, this dynamic of hitting the gas and the brakes at the same time in a way because the cycles are moving so quickly. Yeah, and uh, you got to do that just right or you grind down your brakes or you waste your gas, right? I mean, <laughs> I've been driving for a while. I think that's how it works, Carl. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, as for Tesla, we continue, as Dee says, to watch it very closely from 101 to 161 in what's today, about 20 days, less than 20 days. Uh, remarkable after that call last night. Don't forget tomorrow, also PCE. One more uh, data point before we get that Fed decision uh, in just a few days. For now, Dow roughly flat up six points. Let's get to the judge. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.